Thank you, Josie. If you would please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Beginning Luke 15, we're reaching deep into the heart of this gospel now. Very heart of Luke's gospel. And it just continues to grow increasingly rich in content. Uh, You will notice this section comes at a point when Jesus has been making enormous demands of His disciples. Enormous demands. Not just of the twelve either. That's, that's how some like to blunt the tip, uh, the sharp tip of this thrust that Jesus has been giving while well, He's just talking to the twelve. No, He's talking to all disciples who would follow Him. Um, so I fail not, as I consider this, to contemplate how a Roman official like Theophilus, the original recipient of this letter. Uh, I don't know how he would have mentally processed all of this information the very first time that he read this letter. Just think about that. Uh, A first-time reader of Luke would probably be shocked at the repeated conflicts that Christ experiences with the religious leaders. He or she would probably be astonished by his numerous stringent demands of all who follow him, alienation from family if need be, bearing your own cross, uh, parting ways with all of your possessions. Uh, One might be tempted to question, what kind of man? You know, what kind of, of savior is this who would require such unwavering devotion? Uh, it, It almost seems as the stuff we studied in previous weeks, to be a a level of allegiance traditionally only seen among a despot of some kind, demanding loyalty. So I don't think it would serve us well to proceed without acknowledging the the placement of this material in Luke, Uh, this particular material directly in the middle of Luke's gospel. Last week I shared with you how I myself, I'm shaken at the requirements here that are being exposed by the Gospel of Luke, what, what Christ demands of His followers, um, shaken when observing these repeated commands and demands that could even cause a person, perhaps even someone here today, uh, to wonder, to wonder to themselves, am I actually a Christian? This is incredibly challenging material, and... Um, I didn't read this explanation from any resource. I'm certainly no literary scholar, um, so buyer beware on this. But I can't help but suspect, from what we've been studying to this point, that the Holy Spirit inserted this material here in chapter 15 kind of as a shock absorber to the reader. Serving as a reminder of the gentle and the caring nature of the God whom we serve. Um, So in chapter 15 we come upon three of the most renowned parables of Jesus. They are beautiful parables. The last one of them, the most famous of all parables, the prodigal son. Uh, And in fact, we will see that these are not three different parables at all, but they are three of the same parable. Uh, Some scholars even consider this section, uh, chapter 15, one parable. This is particularly because verse 3 reads, Jesus told them this parable. Uh, The term parabola, or parabole, 
We pronounce it parable. It's a lot easier to pronounce, by the way, than um, what is superfluous. Superf- if you were here last week, you know what I'm talking about. But here, parable, it's in the singular tense. These uh, three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, uh, they're all one and the same parable. That point will be important for us to properly interpret the third parable, the parable of the lost son, um, next week. Next week. And all three reveal our Father in heaven as he who seeks to save. This is the heart of the Christian gospel and the entire reason that that God's divine Son, Jesus, came to be born as a man. It, It is the reason that He endured the cross for our sins. Jesus says, referring to Himself in Luke 19, verse 10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. (laughs) Even His name, Jesus, means Savior or Deliverer or to rescue uh, via the incarnation of God. Christ became a man to seek and to save. That's why he became a man. Doctrinally, this is extremely important for us to process because there's plenty of theology out there within Christendom and outside of Christendom that that suggests that man is always seeking God. We know that is not true. Romans 3 verse 11 assures us actually none of us seeks for God. Not even one. Uh, No rather... In the unsafe state, in the, in, the, in the unregenerate state, what man does is gropes after false idols. Gropes after false idols to serve man, crafted in the hearts of man. They're made of wood, of stone, of marble, any type of material uh, you might come up with. Paul saw this in Athens when he visited there, and he acknowledged to them, Boy, you are religious folks. You people are really religious. They had monuments to every type of God. Even the the unknown God they had a monument to. But none of them ever found God. Not until Paul and the Gospel and the Holy Spirit came seeking for them. And then, we're told in Scripture, a few believed. Instead, the Bible reveals God as a, as a loving, a merciful shepherd who, who seeks his sheep. He, he has to. He has to. We're lost. In the unsafe state, we're as lost as lost gets, dead in our sin and dead to God. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Um, that familiar verse from Isaiah 53, verse 6, it refers to God's sheep. Jesus bore the iniquities of all. Now we have to be careful. The all in Isaiah does not include the goats or even the wolves who are dressed up as sheep. Salvation is not universal. Not everybody in the world is saved. So all has to be qualified, right? Doesn't mean all, all. It means all of his sheep. 
will be saved. He bore the sins in his body for all of his sheep. Unbelievers will bear the punishment uh, for their, their sins themselves. They will bear their own iniquities. Uh, while Isaiah's all refers to all who belong to Christ. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So lost sheep refers to those actually belonging to him. Their names are written down in the book of life at the foundation of the world. But until the shepherd comes, until he arrives on the scene, his very own sheep even remain lost. And and, and he's come to gather the lost sheep of Israel. That is the chosen. The sheep that are lost of Israel. You see, All of Israel thought that they belonged to God's flock. They all did. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the unrighteous, those who were proud and self-righteous. They all thought they belonged to God's flock because they were descendants of Abraham. We've uh, discussed that uh, plenty. Uh, But we have actually discovered in Luke that, that many, in fact most, do not come to God at all. They don't belong to God at all. They instead belong to the world. They're distracted by the world. And they refuse to enter through the narrow door, which only a few, we are told, find. Here's the most marvelous of all truths today. Even his own sheep can't find the door. Even his own sheep, left alone, cannot find it. Left alone to themselves, his sheep are lost. They're lost. They are without a way. They are without a shepherd. So the good shepherd comes. He seeks his sheep. Don't overlook the fact that he finds his sheep. And they hear his voice. And they follow him. He finds us, and then He carries us. He carries us home on His shoulders. (laughs) He loves the sheep. Afterward, He invites all those dwelling near Him, neighbors and friends, of course that is representing uh, all the hosts of heaven, to join with Him in rejoicing over us those whom he has brought home. This is the type of God we serve, folks. This is the type of loving God who cares for his sheep. And this is the God we see in these verses here. The one who seeks and saves the lost and then rejoices when they are found. Rejoices with everyone in heaven when they are found. I'm going to treat the lost sheep and the lost coin today That'll help frame our thoughts, our minds, uh, to understand the parable of actually two sons next week, the parable of two sons. Um, Please follow along as I begin reading verse 1 of Luke chapter 15. Now all of the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to Jesus. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and 
Go after the one which is lost until he finds it. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The flock, you might be surprised to to know, the flock in the passage describes Israel. Don't let that escape your, your mind or you'll process all three parables incorrectly. Some have confused this passage in Luke with with a similar passage in Matthew chapter 18, and they've mistaken this flock of a hundred as the church. That that, that has led to numerous practical errors, uh, but that's not a suitable interpretation here. The focus, the first focus is directed at the tax collectors and the sinners. They're, they're coming to Jesus. They're coming to Jesus. Uh, the self-righteous Pharisees are interfering. Jesus has been seeking out the, um, the lost sheep, represented by the tax collectors and the sinners. He's been sweeping back and forth, you might say, across Galilee, through Judea, back and forth, preaching everywhere that he can, uh, reaching every nick and cranny, so that everybody hears his voice. Now we've got to remember, there's no iPods back then. You didn't get recordings of this stuff. It was very important that Christ made his way throughout the whole land. We see him crisscrossing as he makes his way to the cross. And it is the tax collectors and the sinners who appear drawn to his voice. The voice of the shepherd. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And coming to him are all the the dregs and the off-scourings of society. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they're very upset about this. Verse 2 says that they began to grumble. To grumble. That that word suggests complaining aloud. in, In an audible way. They're grumbling to be heard. And they were, in a sense, heckling what was going on. In the minds of the Pharisees, they were God's people. They were God's flock. And these sinners, they were not. In the theology of the Pharisees, tax collectors were not. They were seen as the worst traitors in Israel, selling out for money uh, to Rome. The word sinners describes all the irreligious riffraff like swindlers and harlots whom the Pharisees and religious scribes would surely never associate with. No way, no how. Um, Would you like to hear some good news? Some really good news? If you have a shameful past, don't raise your hands. 
if you have a shameful past and you feel you have sinned in ways that you believe nobody, if they knew what I have done, nobody would ever associate with me. If that's where you sit today, know in reality, Jesus as God the Son knows all of your past, every single thing you've done, and he wants to associate with you. He is a friend of sinners. He will associate with you even when uh, the religious imposters won't. In fact, if you're willing to recognize your sinful past, which is essential for every Christian, you're actually in a healthier situation, in a spiritual sense. You're actually in a healthier situation than those who are unwilling to recognize their sinful past. That describes the Pharisees. There in verse 7, they are the 99 righteous, actually self-righteous, persons who mistakenly believe they need no repentance. Because a category of righteous person, that, that category of person who doesn't need to repent, that category doesn't exist. In, in verse 7, Jesus is actually employing sarcasm. He, he's mocking to describe the attitude of the Pharisees. When in reality, Scripture says, all have sinned, all must repent, all must turn to Jesus. There is none righteous, there is not even one. There's no category of person who's righteous that needs no repentance. That's what the the Pharisees thought of themselves. So in, in this parable, Jesus is defending his association with sinners. Why is he doing Why is he doing what he's doing? Why is he doing it? Why why is he eating with them? Why is he associating with them? Why is he their friend? Folks, it is the method through which he finds his sheep. This is how he finds his sheep. So he explains, beginning in verse 4, through a parable. He says, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. Jesus tells the Pharisees, you know, imagine yourself a shepherd. That, that would be kind of hard for them. Because being a shepherd was a low class of persons in Israel. Um, the sheep needed constant care. The shepherd always had to be nearby. Uh, the Pharisees in their traditions of Sabbath keepings and, and cleansings and washings and all of these things viewed the shepherds as always breaking their tradition, perpetually. A shepherd was perpetually unclean. They were seen as hoodlums. Uh, nevertheless, nevertheless, even Pharisees recognized that in Israel there were good shepherds And there were bad shepherds. The Pharisees recognized this. As we read together, or we read, excuse me, during our scripture reading earlier in John chapter 10, and that is in verse 11, 
we heard Jesus describe himself as the good shepherd, right? He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves and uh, leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, says Christ, and I know my own and my own know me. You know, in that society, flocks uh, of sheep, they, they were such a precious commodity. For wool, for meat, for many other things. And, and the hired shepherds, those who were hirelings, they were held to a, a strict accountability. It, it would be tempting, if you're kind of a hoodlum, and you were hired out, uh, to maybe pass off one of those sheep on the side as one of your own. Maybe one of them gets lost in the mix, right? Maybe one disappears somewhere. Uh, it would be tempting for a hireling to steal or to sell a sheep here and there for a few extra bucks. So if a sheep were missing, it was required. It was required in Israel uh, that the shepherd, even the hireling shepherd, find it and produce what was left of it, alive or dead. Even if it had been partially eaten by wolves, the shepherd was required to produce whatever carcass was left to prove that that sheep is accounted for to the owner. Um, David was a good shepherd. King of Israel, 1 Samuel chapter 17. And when facing Goliath, he said to Saul this, When your servant was tending his father's sheep, when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock... I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from its mouth. That was the attitude of David. He would save the sheep. And in Israel, a shepherd rescuing or retrieving a sheep, dead or alive, it wasn't only a measure of courage. It was. But it also became an indication of the shepherd's character all being accounted for. The Pharisees, they realize the moral lesson in the parable that Jesus is giving. That the hired shepherds, the hirelings, they too often allowed a sheep to fall behind, unaccounted for. They didn't care. It wasn't theirs. Any are gone, so it hurts their reputation. Maybe they've got to find another gig on the side and some other sheep. There are millions of sheep. I can go tend somewhere else. So they weren't particularly cared about, caring about their reputation or about the sheep. That was the bad shepherd. shepherd. Well, the good shepherd, or a good shepherd, one wishing to demonstrate that he had character, he would search, he would seek, and tell that sheep, was found no matter what. No matter what. Um, no matter how long it would take. Finding that lost sheep would vindicate his reputation as being a good shepherd. Follow me? See how this plays into Jesus here? It was proof that he wasn't selling sheep on the side. The longer the shepherd was willing to look for the lost sheep 
the greater proof it became of his integrity and his honesty. That's what it took to be a good shepherd. And it was a shepherd's duty to leave the flock in a, in a relatively safe, open pasture. Your translation might say wilderness. Not a great translation today. The wilderness back then in Israel was more of an open open rocky area where it was easier to spot predators. Uh, Open pasture is easier for us to understand. Uh, The relative safety of an open area is where the sheep, the 99, were to be left and the shepherd would go and search for the lost sheep. This is what Jesus was doing. With, With the tax collectors and sinners, I mean. You didn't think this was about sheep, did you? He's searching for the lost sheep. Far and wide for for sinners who would repent and trust in God. The lost sheep who repents, um, who hears the shepherd's voice, they belong to him. They belong to him. This passage in Luke, it's, it's entirely evangelistic. Uh, th- this particular location, it's not about a wayward Christian. We can talk about that over in Matthew 18 at some point. But here, this is talking about conversion. Christian, or conversion as a believer. It's not someone who believed and then got lost wayward along the way. Um, look to verse 5. It says, When the shepherd has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, re- rejoicing. And when he comes home... He calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Do you know how happy God gets over even just one sinner who repents? Just one. He loves a sheep. He loves them. Now we're smart people. Does God ever lose track of his sheep? Let's, let's face it, he's got the best GPS system that there is going. God doesn't ever lose track of us or people. Uh, this doesn't suggest that God loses track of us. It describes how until we hear the call of Christ... If you're a Christian here today, a moment was in your life when you heard the call of Christ. Until we hear the call of Christ drawn to him by the Holy Spirit, until that point we travel through this world lost. He's not lost us. We are the ones who are lost until he comes and he finds us. And he will. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Again, these parables are talking about initial salvation. First time salvation. Um, And notice the sovereignty of God on full display here in verse 5. The shepherd lays the sheep on his shoulders, and brings it safely home. This is evidence to his friends, his neighbors, how dearly the good shepherd loves 
his sheep. He doesn't stop searching until he finds it. He lays it on his shoulders. He, he carries it home. And now he calls his friends and his neighbors together. And he says, rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep. And I don't, I don't see any indication in this passage that the shepherd returns this sheep to the other 99. He brings it home. He brings it home for all of his neighbors and his friends to see and to celebrate all the way home to heaven. He brings it home. For verse 7 says, I tell you that in the same way, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need not repent. The 99, again, it's a slap in the face to the Pharisees. And the Greek word for repent in verse 7, Calvin got it right when he discovered, searching this word throughout the Bible each time it appears, it's only ever used in Scripture to indicate spiritual conversion. My Greek lexicon, it's like a dictionary, of Greek terms, uh, extrapolates. It says, this means to have a change of heart, a change of heart and mind that abandons former dispositions and results in a new self, new behavior, and regret over former behavior and dispositions. It's repentance. It's a complete change of heart. And this parable, all three parables, are descriptive of salvation. It's the same interpretation for us in verse 8. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors rejoicing, or saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels uh, of God over one sinner who repents. The widow's coin here is a drachma. Day's wages, a day's wage. And in our society, it's in a society that's just absurdly uh, abundant. I mean, we have so much. It's really absurd, all of the abundance that we enjoy. Um, it's hard for us to relate, but a woman in Israel... If she had a day's wage left somewhere, she would have searched high and low until she found the coin. Some of us might just say, eh, I'll get another coin another day because of the abundance that we have. Um, The emphasis in both of these parables, it's not on how the sheep or the coin become lost. It isn't even the inherent value of each of them The emphasis is that a good shepherd searches until that lost sheep is found. And then he carries it home while all of heaven rejoices at even one sinner who repents. In chapter, John chapter 10, the Jews were furious and confronting Jesus and asking him, If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. 
The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Do you hear him calling? Do you recognize that it is your sin that has prevented you from coming into the fold? Your love for sin, your love for your past life, that's prevented you from being reconciled to Christ all of these years. He's here, folks. He's here to find you. Every single one here should be contemplating if they're lost and need to be found. When he finds you, he will carry you all the way home. No one will snatch them out of the Father's hand. You know, if you're already a Christian here today, which I hope most of us are, let us consider if Christ searches this intently for one sheep, just one, and he gets this this much joy out of one sheep, how should that affect our evangelism? You know, some think that churches succeed on, on big, great, flashy programs, finely produced programs. All Christ did was go around searching for sheep, talking to sheep, eating with sheep, until he found his sheep. 